0: Um, If you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter uh, 11. Let's say 11. Genesis chapter 11. What we're going to do now is we're going to be moving into um, the second half of the book of Genesis. The first half of the book of Genesis was about, um, it's basically... Primeval history—it's the beginning of history—and the second half of the book of Genesis has to do with Abram or Abraham, as he will be known in Scripture later. Don't get confused if I interchange those words. Um, Abram means dad um, or father, and Abraham means father of many nations. So, um, so God renamed him, and um, and so we're going to go into this. What I want to do today, though, is I'm going to actually what I want to show you today is how Genesis chapter. 12 verses 1 through 3. I know this is a pretty aggressive thing to try to do in one Sunday, but what I want to show you is how Genesis chapter 1 through uh, chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 is actually the resolve and the purpose of the entire Bible. That if you get these three verses and understand them, you will know the trajectory and where God is headed and how it ends. And it's very important that you get this. But to do that, to, to do that, and I need you guys to, as much as you can, I know that you're, we're all preoccupied today. We have a lot of other things in our mind today. But if we can, for the next several minutes, just really focus on like, trying to get the story that God is telling in Genesis. If you've been reading through the one-year Bible, you've probably read through this. And and if you're an observant reader, there's some questions that come up, maybe not the questions that immediately come up, but some deeper questions that I want to draw out today. So having said all that, I'm going to start in chapter 11 of Genesis, read some of 11, and then read some of 12. And um, you could follow along if you have a Bible, or it'll be on the screen, and then I'll pray. Verse 11, verse 1, chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And people migrated from east, from the east, and they found a plain, in the land of Shinar, and settled there. And they said to one another, "Come, let us make bricks and burn them and uh, burn them thoroughly." And they had brick for stone and uh, bitumen for mortar. Then they said, "Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves." lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech so that the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth and they left off the building, building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So now they're scattered. Verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. And Haran died in the presence of, the, of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in the Ur of Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, verse 30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, Lot, um, and Lot, and the son of Haran, his grandson, Sarah, his daughter-in-law, and his, son, uh, and his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But When they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, uh, and Terah died in Haran. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. That's our text. Let's pray. God, I pray today that as Abram heard your voice, I pray, God, that we would hear the voice of the God who speaks. I know that you speak today, Lord, that you if, if unless you speak to a heart, unless you call a heart out of darkness into light. Even if somebody has been in the in a, a family whose family has been Christians for generation upon generation until you and unless you break into a life and speak, Lord, we're in darkness. And if God, we are at a place where maybe our our, our families didn't grow up and grow up in a Christian home and there hasn't been that. Lord, still, like Abraham, From Ur of the Chaldeans, you could still speak into a life and say, follow me. And I pray today that you would, I pray on behalf of every single soul here in this building this morning, that you would speak to hearts. I can speak to ears, only you can speak to hearts, so God, I pray you would speak to people. If they fell in their life right now at this point of dramatic tension and something has to give, that you would speak into that moment, God. We want to hear you. Would you tune our ears to hear from you, God? The things that we need to forget right now that we would forget, the things that we need to call to memory to hear your voice, you would call that to memory, God, would you speak? And I pray that you would anoint me and use me. I need your help desperately. I pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. Where the Bible starts, where the Bible begins, is a very important to the story that the Bible's telling. If you've ever read through the Bible, where it begins is very important. It, you could come to a church for years. You could come to a church for generations. And what happens is that the 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 message, the clear message of scripture can become convoluted. You can hear from media or television or different places from different people about the story of God, but unless you know where it begins, it gets very very confusing. Maybe some of you have done evangelistic Um, endeavors, where you go and you share the gospel, where you go and and tell people about God. And normally where people start, when they hand out tracts, or they start, you know, they start telling people about God, they, they start like this. They start, you are a sinner. You're a sinner that's separated from God, and you need to radically be renewed back to God, okay? That's where they start. The Bible or the church, they normally start with that, like, you are a sinner. The Bible, though, never starts that way. The Bible doesn't start that way, the Bible starts somewhere completely different. Now, it is true for probably most of us in here that we are sinners separated from God, that we need God desperately, but that's not where the Bible begins. The Bible begins in, with Genesis with perfection, the Bible begins with perfection in a perfect world, a perfect creation. That's where the Bible begins. So when God tells a story, he starts like this. In the beginning, everything was perfect. Everything was harmonious. Everything lived in perfect shalom, perfect peace. The first human couple had perfect bodies. The first human couple had perfect minds. They had perfect food. There was a perfect environment. There was a perfect relationship with each other and a perfect relationship with God. This is how it says it in Genesis chapter 1. God saw that everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there's this theme, and I want you to hold on to that theme for a second, put that in your memory bank. Hold on to this theme of good. There's this theme of good. God saw that it was good and it was good and it was good. Everything that God had made was good. That's how the Bible starts. The Bible starts with the story that God made it all good. It was all perfect. And then chapter 2, verse 25, it says it like this. And they, the first couple, Adam and Eve, were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, in case you think that's easy, you're like, well, that's easy. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about being naked, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually, being actually at peace with yourself, you were whole, at peace, they were, Adam and Eve were at peace with themselves, which is actually a very heavy statement. If they were at peace with themselves, how many of you can say that? Like, are you at peace with yourself? No, I'm, I have these conflicting desires all the time, these conflicting thoughts all the time, and I'm wrestling. A lot of us live in that place. Adam and Eve had perfect peace where they can be naked emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. They were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is how the Bible starts. And what we do know as well is that this first book, this beginning, is actually the beginning of the Jewish story. This we're in the Jewish portion of the Bible, the Jewish Bible. It's the Jewish story, the the, the story of the chosen people of God. But the Bible starts in Genesis chapter 1. The Bible begins not with the chosen race but with the human race. And this is important. The Bible starts not with the chosen race, but the human race. Because the, the reason why that's important is because the Bible ends the exact same way. Not with the chosen race, but the human race. The Bible has some beautiful symmetry to it if you've read it cover to cover. It, ha- it starts with the human race. It ends with the human race. It starts, it also has a good progression. It unfolds. It starts in a garden. It ends with, the, in a city. It starts with, starts with the tree. It ends with the tree. It starts with the marriage and it ends with the marriage. It has beautiful symmetry. God is unfolding a story here. And it starts with the human race. Now, why am I bringing up how the Bible begins? Well, from chapters 1 through 11, the Bible has moved with selective speed. If you've been following along in our series through Genesis, if you have been reading the book of Genesis and you're in your one year Bible, you know how the Bible moves from chapter 1 through 11 very, very fast. It starts with the creation of the world, then it moves very rapidly to the, 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 the first parents and then the fall and then murder and then when... Um, Cain kills Abel. Cain flees to a city, and your first question is, okay, wait, wait, wait. everybody stop. Where is this city at? Is, not, is this not the first family? And, and, and Cain says people will kill him. What people? And Cain goes and gets a wife. Where is this wife coming from? Like, we have all these questions. Where is this? Where, why is this happening? How is this moving so fast? The, the, the storyteller, the narrator, has no interest in telling us at all. He's moving a story forward. And so we keep reading and it's unfolding. As we began the book of Genesis, I started with this very important point that the book of Genesis is not a book on modern science. It is not, that is not the purpose of it. Now there's people in the church that try to make it that. That's not why it was written. If it was, we'd have two pages. God was like, let me give you modern science in two pages. That is not the purpose of it. God is moving a story forward and it's moving very, very fast it doesn't stop to explain the city that Cain fled to. It doesn't slow down to tell you how all the animals fit on the ark. Like, can you explain the flood? Was it universal? Was it local? How big was it? The narrative's like, I don't, I don't really care to tell you that. Well, okay, so how, how did they all live together in the ark? How did that work? How did, how did Noah summon all the animals? It doesn't tell us. There is a story that's moving forward and those details are left out. The questions that we want to bring to the text are not answered because the Bible is moving forward and telling this single story. That's not the point of it. It's driving a story forward and the story is moving forward very, very fast. From creation to fall, Cain and Abel, then you have these weird fallen angel things that that the earth is totally corrupt, you have a flood, then you have Babel, and then all of a sudden the story stops. And it stops on Abram. It's as if everything from Genesis before Abram was a prologue to this family. And so one commentator notes in his book, Understanding Genesis, the world of the Bible in light of history. Genesis is but a prologue the historical drama that unfolds itself in the ensuing pages of the Bible. It proclaims loudly and unambiguously the absolute subordination of all creation to the supreme creator who thus can make use of the forces of nature to fulfill his mighty deeds in history. It asserts unequivocally that the basic truth of all history is that the world is under the undivided and inescapable sovereignty of God. In brief, unlike the Enuma Elish in Babylon... The Genesis creation narrative is primarily the record of the event which inaugurated this historical process and which ensures that there is a divine purpose behind creation that works itself out on the human scene. What's happening in chapters 1 through 11 is a type of a prologue, setting a precedence. Genesis 1 through 11 are like the opening of of, of like an opening montage of a movie if a movie was trying to give you a context, if you, were to, if you wanted all the context to Abram, the, the narrator goes, okay, let me give you the context of, uh, of, of Abram, but I want to give you two in glimpses, like a montage of the opening lines of a movie. It opens up, and then it starts with creation. Then it opens up, and it starts with Adam and Eve, and then a garden, and then perfection, and then temptation, and then, and then the fall. And then all of a sudden, the next glimpse you get is a, a, almost a world filled with hate and murder and crime. And everyone's heart is always wicked continually. And then it would open up with a family. And then the building of an ark. And then everyone getting on the ark. And then a flood. And then them getting off. Then everyone scattering to a place. And then building this tower saying, we will make a name for ourselves. We don't need God anymore. That's the context. It all starts. When my wife and I saw Terrence Malick's movie, The Tree of Life, um, about an hour into the movie, my wife commented. She just leaned over and commented. It's like, she said, it's neat how the movie basically started with the creation of the world and then landed on one family. Like, have you ever seen a movie like started with the creation of the world? I mean, you got like the, the in the beginning there was light and you have all these, the, the earth forming and then there was like cute dinosaurs and they were nice to each other and like all this stuff, like all these like opening scenes and then it lands on one family. It's like, ah, that's exactly what Genesis does. Like it opens up and you have this, you have this, giant epic view of creation and then you have the fall you have all of these things all of it so it opens up on one character like focusing on one character now that you have the context let's talk about this character do you have the context to abram now do you have the context of the world do you see where the world's going what is god going to do that's why it's important to understand this in context this is why it's important to understand the narrative how is god telling this story In the opening chapters of Genesis, you get flashes of primeval history, setting the scene, the context, it's building tension, and then landing on the character in Genesis chapter 12. The focus of this author, since the beginning of this book, has been on God's plan to bless humanity by providing them good. So there's this whole context, this whole subtext, happening in the opening chapters of Genesis, where God's saying, I'm providing the good. I've created everything good, everything good. I put humanity in the Garden of Eden, and it's all good. And then what's happened over and over again from chapters 1 through 11 is human failure to trust God and enjoy the good. Humanity continually rebelling against God. Like, I know that you know what's good, God, but we want this. We know, we, know, we know you know what's good for us, but we want this rebelling and rebelling and rebelling. And there's this cycle of rebellion that happens over. It's like sin has this progression. It's like sin keeps moving, spiraling downward and downward. Recall Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was, a, it was good, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was good to make one wise, desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. In the creation narrative in chapter t- one and two of Genesis, this phrase is used over and over again. God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. God created everything good, the, the sky, the light, the, the, the night, the day, the sea, the dry ground, animals, mammals, birds, men, women, And it was very good. And God put men and women in charge and gave them access to all the good that he created. And Adam and Eve were participants and had the privilege of enjoying the good story of God. Adam and Eve had had all the good they would ever want. But what happened in Genesis chapter three is they wanted more. The, The centerpiece of this temptation story is around the question of good. Who determines good? And, and, what's, and what's not ironic, it's, it's true, it's, it's that this is what you and I deal with every day. I mean, the, the debates that, that we have, the arguments that we have, the conversations that we have in our society, in our world, in our workplaces, and even in our own hearts, is this question of good. Who decides what's best for me? Do I decide what's best for me, or does God decide what's best for me? Do I Is God kind of outdated, old-fashioned? I'm not really going to listen to him on his advice or his, his like counsel for wisdom when it comes to money or when it comes to relationships or when it comes to my future, my life, or the afterlife or whatever. I will, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to decide for myself what's good and what's right. Is, hasn't that been the thing since the beginning? And this is what they wrestled with. The knowledge of good and evil wasn't necessarily this temptation to know everything. They were made in the image of God. They knew it. The essence of the temptations was for independence that enables someone to decide for themselves what will help them or what will hinder them. What is good for themselves? It's like I don't need some God telling me what to do with my time. I don't need some God telling me what to do with my career. I don't need some God telling me what to do with my money. I don't need some God telling me what to do with my sexuality. I don't need some God telling me how I can express myself, what's right, what's wrong. I'll decide that for myself. This is the essence of Genesis chapter 3. And you and I eat from this tree every single day when we make a decision to trust in our own wisdom. And in the first 11 chapters we get highlights of this happening again and again. This, okay so it starts in Genesis 3, but now we get what well, we're getting we're getting highlights of it as we move forward. We're getting highlights of it in chapter 4 in chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. We get highlights of these things happening over and over again. And sin advances at the speed of technology. like people invent new ways to rebel and disobey God. So the tension in the narrative that's building, if you're reading through uh, the first 11 chapters, the tension of the narrative that builds is this question that hangs over the, the, the entire prologue to Genesis. And here's the question. Is there anyone, anyone who will trust God to provide the good? Is there anyone out there? Is there somebody out there that will trust God, that God knows what he's talking about? That God knows the good? Is there? And even with Noah getting drunk and naked, if you've read that far ahead, (laughs) the answer is always no. But the narrative keeps spiraling downward to the saddest part of the Bible in chapter 6, verse 5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, man's heart, was only evil continually. This was his creation. This was, he, he didn't create humanity to get love because God is love. He doesn't need, love exists in himself. He doesn't need us to love him. He created us to share, to be a part, to be brought in, as C.S. Lewis says, the divine dance of love that God has. And human Humanity just said no, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, and for the sake of God's creation, God recreates the world. These sins of Adam and Eve, and Cain, and Lamech, and the Nephilim, and the Tower of Babel, these are all stages along the way which has separated man farther and farther from God. And so Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is rapidly showing us how man and women, humanity, get separated farther and farther and farther and farther from God, over and over and over. Like, so if you were, again, if it was an opening opening movie uh, scene to a movie, it would be over and over again how humanity is getting farther and farther and farther away from God. The rapid succession of, of the narrative points out a continually widening chasm between humanity and God. That's what's happening in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, if you wanted to know. So what's happening here this is what's happening this widening chasm and every single time god reacts to these outbreaks of human sin with severe judgment now if you have a problem with that and there's something in us that should have a problem with that we taught it uh in the middle of december before we broke for advent got it and we said that god must because god's holy and loving and truthful he must deal with brokenness he must deal with sin adam and eve's judgment was severe Severe still was Cain's, then the flood, and the final judgment of the prologue, dispersion. Everyone speaks a different language and everybody leaves. Everyone disperses everywhere. God breaks up the Tower of Babel, which was man's attempt to make a name for himself, to defy God, to assert complete independence from God. It was subtle in the garden, but you see how explicit it is in the Tower of Babel? How, how subtle was in the garden, okay, I'll, I'll eat this apple, mm, or not apple, I don't, nobody knows what it was, but anyway, I'll eat this fruit, but then how explicit it was in Babel, hey, guys, everybody, can you hear me? Of course, because we all speak the same language. Okay, we're going to build this tower, and we're going to defy God. We're going to make a name. We don't need him. We'll make a name for ourselves. See how explicit it is? And God said he had to, in order to restore people's idea of who God is, He had to break in and do something. The book started with this perfect relationship, humanity with God, humanity with humanity, and humanity with nature. But now at the end of primeval history, once you get to the end of chapter three or chapter 11, a difficult question is raised. If you, get to, if you read chapters 1 through 11, you ask yourself this question. What is God's future relationship to his rebellious humanity, which is now scattered in fragments? They're everywhere. They're scattered everywhere, and they don't even speak the same language. What is God going to do now? But there's even a greater question once you get to chapter 11. And the question is this. After each judgment, if you've been a careful observer of the text, every single judgment God preserves. God works through the judgment to preserve. God works through the judgment with grace. God forgives through it. It's as if Romans five twenty was playing its way out in the opening lines of Genesis where sin abound, grace abound all the more. So Adam and Eve remained alive and God clothed them and then promised a redeemer. Cain received this mysterious protective relationship between him and God and God preserves the land animals and humanity through the flood. However, this preserving grace is missing in one place, the Tower of Babel. So when you read to the Tower of Babel, you read to the end of it, you're like, wait, where's God's grace? And you don't find it. One commentator notes, um, the story of the Tower of Babel concludes with God's judgment on mankind, and there's no word of grace. The whole primeval history, therefore, seems to break off in shrill dissonance, and the question of future humanity now rises even more urgently. Is God's relationship to the nations now finally broken? Is God's gracious forbearance now exhausted? Has God rejected the nations forever? When you get to chapter 11, you're going to ask yourself, okay, humanity keeps rebelling against God. God scatters everybody. God gives no hope now. What's going to happen? This is the building tension of chapters 1 through 11. This is the building tension that actually gets resolved in chapter 12. This is the question, if we're paying attention to the narrative, that we cannot avoid. It's only now, once we understand the context, that we can actually move into chapter 12. It's only now, once we get this, that we can actually read chapter 12. But as a good storyteller does, there is one more small bit of tension, okay? I love this. There's one more small bit of tension that the the, the narrator throws in there just to make, just to... to thicken the plot a little bit, just to go, okay, you want another thing in here that's pretty hard? And, and what they do is um, the, the narrator throws in one more detail that the reader can pick up for the paradox of God's initial speech. The author throws in one more thing to build a paradox, and it's this. Oh yeah, verse 30. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, was barren. Just just to add a little bit more depression to this whole thing. Abram's wife, Sarai, couldn't have children, and she didn't have children. Okay, now you're ready to read chapter 12. See how God builds it up? Like, it starts in perfection, and then it spirals downward and downward and downward, and there's no hope, and just when you think there's no hope, and she's barren. You're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? Like, this is horrible. And then you get to chapter 12. Now the Lord, he's the subject, said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Read in their faith. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. Wait, stop there. What what was the goal of the Tower of Babel? Let's make a name for ourselves. And God's saying, oh, Abram, I'm gonna make you a name for yourself. I'll do it. And it'll be way better than what you do. I will make you a great nation. I will make a name for you. And then he says this. So that. Could, could you just for a second circle that in your Bible? If you guys do that sort of thing or write or, or write that down in your hand or get that ta- tattooed somewhere. I don't know. Just like if you're into that. Like so that. Do you get this? Do you understand this? Guys, if, if, just a little tangent here. If you guys are successful in your startup or you're successful in your education, you're successful in your job, your career, if you're successful in your, in your marriage... You're not successful so that you can get more stuff, so that you can acquire uh, more things, so that you can go on cool vacations. You are blessed so that you will be a blessing. Do you understand that? Like, if you're successful, it's that you would be a blessing. It's that you would bless other people, that you would be a conduit of blessing to the nations, to the city, to your friends, your family, to, to the kingdom of God. God gives so that you can, you would be a conduit of God's grace, God's generosity, and I'm not just talking about finances, but I am talking about finances, that you would be a conduit of blessing. Do you see how that works? Abram, I'm gonna bless you. And though the Tower of Babel, and he was there, he was scattered, that's why he was sojourning, that's why he was moving on from where he was from, You guys try to make a name for yourself. Abram, I'll make a name for you. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. And I will bless those who curse you, or I will bless those who bless you. Not the other way around, that's mean. I will bless those who bless you. And him, singular, this is odd, him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. Now, I told you that at the very beginning, and I said, what I'm going to try to do is show you that the whole Bible is the unfolding of this text. The entire Bible, the the, the resolve of the Bible, the movement of the Bible is actually an unfolding of this. From this text, the rest of the Bible is an unfolding of it. The gospel is actually a fulfillment of this text. It wouldn't be a a stretch to say that the purpose and the resolve of the entire Bible is found here. If that's the case, what is it? If that's the case, if this is the resolve, what is is this saying? Again, this is an introduction. We don't have that, that much time to get into Abram. That's next week. But this is what it's saying. It's saying that whenever humanity has all but turned on God, when the tension of our lives seem to about break us, I've... My job, being a pastor, praying with people, counseling people. I've seen when life adds so much tension, so much tension, and then you get a text message, and it's like it's almost as if, oh, by the way, and Sarah was barren. It's like one of those texts, or one of one of those emails, or one of that bit of news. You're like, and that, that too, seriously. When like tension in your life, like something's got to give, and then what gives is more tension. And more and more and more. What this says here, what this text says is at that point, at that moment, when it seems like there is no hope, God breaks in with a promise. God breaks in. And he makes a promise and he builds it upon himself. A promise to bless the world. See, the world's in focus here. I will bless the world. At the point of all this tension as with the tension of our own lives we never know when God will break in, ever. You, you might need to like hide that away somewhere deep in your heart, in your mind, in your Bible, somewhere deep. You never know when God's going to break in, ever. We never know how God will break into the life of a couple who can't have kids. You don't know. We never know how God will break into the life of someone who just wants to know what God is like. Those people that stay up at night worrying about, what about those people that have never heard the gospel way out there and they want to know what God's like? God breaks into those situations. You know that? We never know how God will break into a life of someone who desperately wants a spouse or a companion or even a friend. We never know how God will break into a life of someone who is experiencing tremendous pain. We never know how God will break into a life of someone who sees no future and feels as Hagar did when she sent her son off because she couldn't see him die. And her wineskin ran out of water, and they were in the desert, and she says, and she wept because that's all she could do. And then God breaks in at that moment. We never know when God, when that, the tension of her life happens. We never know that's actually the scene that's God setting up. It's like the context. God's like, oh, I'm still building context here. I'm still building context. It's probably gonna last another 50 years. How old was Abram here? Pretty old. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the the context that God builds in your life. This is what God does. What will happen from Genesis chapter 12 to Revelation chapter 7 is God will demonstrate again and again and again. And if you're doing the one in your Bible, and if not, you should pick it up today, you will see again and again and again and again God's ability to overcome obstacles and resolve jeopardy as he fulfills his promise and provides what is necessary for the promise of renewal to move forward over and over and over again in the Bible. We see it and we wait and we see it in barren Sarah. We see it in the wifeless Isaac. We see it in the deceiver Jacob. We see it in Joseph who was sold into slavery. How's God going to work through that? He's in in prison. We see it in rebellious Israel. We see it in the powerful Rome. And then we see it with all broken humanity. We wait and we see it. And we see it finally. It says in Romans chapter 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's actually, Genesis chapter 1 through 11 can be said, it's actually uh, Genesis chapter 1 all the way until the cross. God's just setting up the context for at the right moment, Christ breaks in and Christ dies for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one will even dare to die. But God shows his love. God demonstrates, shows off, proves to us his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ breaks in and restores. Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to bless the nations. Do you see that? See what God was saying to Abram that he never really understood, but he understood later? And it says in Hebrews, he was looking, looking for a city whose architect and builder was God. What God was really doing was like, through you, I'm gonna bless the nations. Because through you, Christ will come. And he will die for the world. Christ is the culmination of how God reveals himself to humanity that is separated from their God. All of God's revelation of himself comes to climax in Christ. So at the end of the Bible, now we're at the end of it, okay? The promise, remember the Bible opened like this with mankind. Then it zeroed in on one little nation. And God said to Abram, through you I will bless the nations. And then you get to the end of the Bible and you realize the promise wasn't just for Israel. But it was for everyone. Revelation 7. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Nations, tongues, every single nation represented, every tongue represented. Through Abram, God bless the world. Now, how does Abram or Abraham respond? Now remember the question that hangs over, is there anyone who will trust God to provide the good? And the answer happens in chapter 12, verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord told him. And this theme is repeated over and over again in the life of Abram. When, Abram calls, when God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, a really strange story, can't wait until we get there. He goes up to the top of this mountain with his son, his only son, and Isaac goes, Dad, um, so we have all the stuff for sacrifice, right? But we don't really have the sacrifice. And Abraham says, God will provide. Let's just keep moving on. I don't know, I don't know how, how it's going to happen. Let's just, see, this is, this is, what happens is, for the children of Israel that get this, and for every, all the people of God from this point on, Abraham becomes like this prototype. It's actually, the, 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 one of the main verses in the entire Bible is that, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is like the centerpiece of it all. This is what what it means to follow God. This is what it means for the people of God. What what Abraham shows is the basic characteristic of our existence before God. We believe. We might not see, but we believe. We are people that might not know how how it all is going to be resolved, all the small details, but we trust And so I want to ask you, will you trust God, that he has provided through Christ all that you'll ever need, a relationship, a living, breathing relationship with God where you and I can rest and say, I trust you. Sometimes at the end of a sermon or when you read scripture, there might... Sometimes you have words. Like you might hear a sermon, you might read through a passage of scripture, you might read a, a meditation or hear a song, and you have words. There's things that you, want, you might want to say, things that you might want to say to God. Maybe God's spirit quickens something in you when you hear this. And you have words, you have words of maybe confession. Like, God, I'm, I'm sorry I've just made it about me. I'm sorry I got my eyes so on me that I can't see that your unfolding plan. Maybe it's words of adoration, God, I I I love you. I love your plan, even though I don't understand I love it. Maybe it's words of like maybe it's a statement more of God, I believe you. Sometimes you don't have words. You hear something like this and you're like, I, I feel this stirring, I just don't have any words. And that's okay. Sometimes it's good just to be silent before God. But sometimes we need words. Sometimes we need things to say, things to pray. And so what I want to do as we close, I want to put a prayer on the screen. And I want you guys to, at the very beginning of our time of worship, I want us to spend some time for those who need words. We can reflect on these words. And when you're ready, communion is here. To remember the body and the blood of Christ. Prayer ministry is here to pray for you about anything. And carpets are here to take that posture of worship. So here's the prayer and I want to give you time to reflect and respond to it if you need the words. Let me pray for you and let's worship. God, I thank you that you are the God who sees, the God who hears, the God who restores. And I pray for those in here who have words that we would pray those words. If we have have an unsettled soul, we can bring that to you. If we don't have words, maybe a lot of us just need to stop and reflect and reflect on this prayer. I ask God that you would restore our trust, our hope, our faith in you alone. For you are the object of our faith. You are the object of our worship. In you we trust. In Jesus' name, amen.